0: Hello and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast shining a light on developers' lives from all over the world. My name is Tim Bourguignon and today I receive Ali Spittle. Ali is a software engineer at Dev. Before that, she was a lead instructor at General Assembly. She loves Python, JavaScript and talking about code. She's most interested in the intersection of programming, art and education. When Ali's not working, you can find her watching New England sports, competing on Cold Wars, taking runs around Capitol Hill, rock climbing, or participating in DC coding community events. Ali also blogs at dev.to slash A-S-P-I-T-T-E-L, where she talks about code and her life surrounding it. Her writing has gotten roughly 600,000 readers the past year only. Wow. Ali, welcome to Dev Journey.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's our pleasure. So, let's start right in. Tell us, how did your journey into development start?
1: Yeah, so I totally ended up being a programmer accidentally. So, I didn't go to a high school that had computer science or anything like that. I didn't even know what code was until I was a sophomore in college. So when I was 19, I had an extra credit unit in college, and a couple of friends had been taking programming classes and said that computer science was the thing to learn. I didn't even know what code was. I thought that I would essentially be like dragging and dropping things or learning how to format Word documents well. I didn't know that I'd be building actual software. And so I ended up in this Python class. I remember the first day of class, they didn't even have us um, writing code or anything like that. All they had was a piece of code printed out on paper. We were supposed to type that code into a text editor and run it. I remember thinking like, what is this? We're moving way too fast. I have no idea what's going on. And it was like the super, super easy assignment. Um, But from there, we did all these games and built all these really cool things. I ended up just falling in love with programming and thinking it was the coolest thing ever. I I then decided that I was going to try and double major in computer science. I'd done pretty well in the class, and they asked me to uh, assistant teach the class the next semester. And so I was signed up for that and then took a C++ class the next semester while uh, assistant teaching that Python class. I absolutely hated C++. So I... <laughs> Felt like I was in way over my head. I didn't understand why we were programming all these things that we had built into Python. Like, why would we ever use the C language if Python exists? Python's amazing. C is not fun. Um, and the class just moved pretty fast too. So we were doing like algorithms and data structures and it, I was trying to trying to figure out what was going on and so confused by everything. I remember I pulled like two all-nighters in a row trying to build a Sudoku solver, and I still didn't have the correct one by the time that the project was due. And I just worked so hard at that class and got worse grades than I was used to. Wasn't loving it. And so I was like, computer science is actually not for me. I was incorrect that last semester when I fell in love with Python. This is actually not my thing. I'm, I'm walking away from this. Um, from there, I, I obviously got back into it. Um, and what happened is that I was doing a political internship. I wanted to work in government when I graduated. I actually wanted to do like political journalism. So chasing the candidates on the campaign trail was kind of my dream job. And I was doing an internship for that, and they were asking me to do Excel work. And I was able to do the Excel work pretty fast because I could write macros and I kind of understood how data was structured and was able to be pretty efficient doing that. And then they kind of talked about this SQL thing and asked me to do a little bit with that. And I didn't really know what it was, but I played with it. Um, The following summer, I was looking for political internships, couldn't really find something that was paid, and I needed to have a paid internship. And um, I found this job that was a hybrid between politics, which was what I was doing, and computer science or software engineering. And there wasn't even like a job listing for it. It was just this company that had both these skill sets on their website. And so I cold emailed them. I was like, I am a junior in college looking for an internship. And it sounds like you all are, you know, doing some things that I I could be interested in doing this. This data stuff is fun and seems like kind of the, the future of politics and, Um, I've written a little bit of code in college, I TA'd, or assistant taught, and kind of one thing led to another, and I started in kind of a hybrid politics software engineering job that turned into just a software engineering job, and so my whole journey has kind of been accidental in a lot of ways, where these choices haven't been super intentional, and there's been a lot of highs and lows, but kept falling into it no matter if I wanted to or not and have really loved doing it, even though it's been somewhat rocky road.
0: (laughs) That's a very interesting, interesting journey. Was there a moment where it became uh, more intentional?
1: Yeah. So I think after getting that first software engineering job or that job that turned into a real software engineering job, um, I think that that ended up boosting my confidence a lot more. I was able to do really, really well in that role. It was doing Python. And then I did some more JavaScript stuff as I kept going with the role, but starting off with Python was great. And I had a lot of fun with that and doing the more tangible stuff actually was a lot easier for me than the conceptual stuff from computer science. Cause I understood the context more like, like, being asked to build a linked list seemed really abstract, and I didn't understand why anybody would need to do that. Um, whereas building a site that analyzes campaign data, that has a tangible output that helps political campaigns and people can see that data and know what it does. And so um, doing real-world development for me was actually much easier than the academic development.
0: Is this something that you, you still see in your day-to-day job?
1: Yeah, so I, I've taken a couple of different roads now in my career. So I worked for a while doing that job, and I grew so much working for that startup, doing politics and software engineering for them, and really just grew so much out of that. But then I started teaching. Um, and in teaching, I was able to teach a lot more of the tangible stuff, the stuff that made sense and was fun and could be used by companies. Um, And I, I still do or did teach a lot of those data structures and algorithms things, but from a more practical standpoint. And I think having a hard time learning it myself has made it so that teaching that stuff to other people is a little bit easier and, can be a little bit more helpful for them at least i hope
0: Mm -hmm. i'm I'm sure it is did you have a chance to talk to the the teachers back then at university teaching you c++ and ask them basically um why they chose this those examples back then
1: yeah so i was not one of those students i was such a somebody who had always academically done really, really well, both in high school and college. I think that was actually kind of harmful in a lot of ways. I've talked about this a little bit before, but um, I I think that I grew up kind of expecting perfectionism with myself, um, especially when it came to like grades and doing well in classes. And I wasn't really used to struggling in a class. And so... I really like blamed that on myself, and just was like, if I work harder at this and spend more time at it, I'll understand it. Rather than like, going to office hours or um, asking more questions. And again, I think that the whole class was kind of struggling with that class as well. Like looking back on it, a lot of people did drop and didn't didn't stay in the program. So I, I don't think it was just me, but. At that point, it really felt like it was my fault.
0: Hmm. Too bad. Well, I mean, it seems to have turned out okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, it definitely turned out okay.
0: So after these uh, your studies, you said you um, went uh, to work for a startup? That's correct?
1: Right? Yep. So that same startup that I started working at my junior year in college, I started working full-time for them. Um after interning so i interned that summer and then that fall i started as a software engineer for them um i finished college kind of in a weird manner i uh, my last semester college i worked full time for them was a full time student and then also had a part time teaching internship at the middle school near my college and so there's a lot going on at that point but my last semester of college um my second semester of senior year i ended up just being done with college and i wrote my thesis remote and that's all that i had left to do so my last year of college was more work than than studies for sure
0: <laughs> wow yeah do you, do you, have, do you have a special trick to have more times in your day than than usual mortals <laughs>
1: <laughs> no no just not somebody that needs a lot of sleep and also not a lot of downtime but i definitely do now more a couple years later
0: <laughs> but that's a cool superpower though <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah definitely weird
0: okay and um looking back what do you take from this time uh in, in your uh, this first job in your career
1: yeah, so I think working at a startup is always fascinating because you get so many more years of experience than you put in. Like, I worked there for around two and a half years, but it feels like I had the experience of so many 10 years in or something like that because you get to see everything. You get your hands on all these different tools you get to work with, different apps you get to work on, things that are moving really fast, of course you have to put in hours that are usually somewhat absurd. And at that point in my life I was like very willing to do that and was able to, which I think is really lucky in itself. Um, but I definitely think there are highs and, and lows to that. Like I learned more there than I could have anywhere else, but also had to put more into it, I think, than a lot of jobs would would request.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. And where did you grow after this?
1: Yeah. So near the end of working there, I transitioned into teaching code for all time at a coding boot camp. So in back in college, if we're going back to that, um, I was going to be an education minor if I hadn't done my weird senior year of college. And so I was like one credit away from being an education minor, which was as much as you could do in education at my college. And so I had that context. I really loved teaching. And at that point, I really loved teaching kids. I thought that was really awesome. And it, it still is. It's something that I love doing, especially on a volunteer basis. But I had the opportunity to teach adult code through this boot camp. And Teaching adults is another really, really incredible opportunity because you get to be so impactful on their careers, and it's definitely a different challenge than teaching kids. Um, and so I transitioned into doing that. I started off by teaching just kind of a normal coding boot camp environment with students on campus, and then I moved over to teaching at companies. So there's this enterprise program within the bootcamp that I worked for, and they took employees of companies that were still employed by those companies and reskilled them. So they had one job coming in and then would leave as a software engineer or web developer. And that was a really cool opportunity as well. And the ability to like see those companies that Invested in their employees like that it was really, really cool to see. And it's also a very different environment than being on a bootcamp campus. So I really, really enjoyed that. And then recently I've transitioned over to a new role and I'm currently a software engineer and a developer advocate for Dev2. And then I still do teach code part-time for that coding bootcamp still as well.
0: Fantastic. How did you manage to wiggle yourself in this bootcamp?
1: Yeah. So I started off by um, guest lecturing there. So actually for their data science program and I taught the web development program. So a little bit different, but I started teaching web, uh, sorry, started teaching data visualization there just on guest lectures and really enjoyed it. was also just terrified because I hadn't really done public speaking in front of adults like that. So it was was pretty scary, definitely at first. And each time that I did it though, it got better and better and easier and more fun, and the the lesson got better as well. And then they eventually had an opening and I was close friends with a couple people that worked there. And ended up doing a sample teach in order to kind of interview in a way there and then ended up landing the job. So that's kind of my story is doing it on a volunteer basis first and then doing it for real. But that volunteering was really good for me because I love teaching and it was great for my company at the time, too, because those guest lectures turn into kind of recruiting opportunities as well
0: how did you overcome um imposter syndrome what did you did you have it in the first place
1: yeah so i think that my peak imposter syndrome was definitely when i quit coding because that was definitely definitely something that was a huge milestone in my coding journey you know, dropping that C++ class or dropping after that C++ class and saying that coding wasn't for me. So I think that that was the the start of it. But I think it definitely peaks and valleys at different points in my career. I think that teaching actually really, really helped it. And I felt more confident when I was teaching because in order to teach something, you have to know it really, really well. And to be able to answer student questions, because they come from all different angles and everybody thinks about things differently. So people will ask you stuff that like you would never have thought of it that way. So definitely teaching made me feel more confident in my code. Um, But so I also have a programming blog, which you talked about in my introduction. And I think that in some ways that's brought about, more imposter syndrome just because so many more people are looking at my work and kind of putting it under a microscope and you know you get those trolly comments sometimes I think that that has been a little bit harmful but that's more more recent definitely for me there but I think definitely teaching was like my kind of high point in, in battling imposter syndrome where I felt pretty confident about my abilities.
0: What is, in in your opinion, um, or what are the skills required to be a good teacher?
1: Yeah, so I think being able to balance a bunch, there's so much that you have to balance as a teacher. So you're balancing everybody's different learning styles. You're trying to keep everybody focused on your lecture and not on Facebook. You're trying to make sure that everybody understands stuff. So you're asking a lot of questions and doing checks to make sure that people are grasping the material. You're also live coding a lot. So you're attached to some sort of smart board or projector writing code. And that's always stressful as anybody who's given a conference talk can attest to. Um, Then on top of that, you're also managing technology. So if you're using something for screen sharing, if you're teaching online, or if you're using Slack to communicate with other instructors like all of that can potentially fail or the projectors can fail. Um, So there's just so much to balance, which I think a lot of people don't, don't fully understand. And so that's huge. I think Uh, Appealing to different learning styles is really important and using your empathy to understand that different people learn differently and not everybody's going to grasp stuff A at the same speed or B in the same way. And so I think having that kind of understanding is really important as well. Those are my two big ones right now that you can stay on top of things and that you can put yourself in other people's shoes. And being a strong communicator, that's that's a big one as well. The ability to accurately explain things and stand in front of a room and give a talk and be comfortable enough with that.
0: I would have two questions. I'm not sure which one I should start with. Uh, I will ask you both of, you, of them, and then you can uh, you can decide which one you want. Um, the first one would have to do with uh, uh, teaching versus mentoring. So how do you differentiate um, um, both parts and how do you handle both parts and the second one would be um how do you deal with um the situation where somebody doesn't get it and where where you you don't know how to how to um express yourself anymore you you tried three different versions how to get at at a problem and it's still not working and how do you put yourself in question but maybe not too much and try to find a different angle etc so those two questions would be interesting uh, of interest to me
1: yeah so for the first one the difference between teaching and mentoring so I think that they're really intertwined, and I like to think of mentorship in some ways as like a form of teaching. But I think that the biggest differentiator is the format. That teaching is formal, and normally for a group of people, there's a lot of structure to it, whereas mentoring is a little bit less formal, and there's usually a little bit less preparation that goes into it ahead of time. and it's more like answering people's questions and giving them advice from your own career. So I think that those are the the biggest differences that I've seen there. I've done a lot more formalized teaching than mentorship. I have definitely like mentored junior developers at work, but um, I try to focus more on teaching, I guess, outside of work. That makes sense. Okay. As far as the second question, how to deal with somebody just really not understanding something, I think that having resources that explain things well is really important too. So maybe I just think about something so differently that it just won't make sense for somebody. So if I have a stockpile of resources to send out to that person so that they can go watch somebody else's video and how they taught it or if they have a blog post that they can read and maybe somebody coming at it from that blog post perspective will help. And I've also done mostly teaching on instructional teams so I can rely on co-instructors as well. Though that being said, after you know going through something in lecture and then also with that person in office hours, I'm not sure that I've had a situation where somebody still hasn't gotten it after Doing both in person and the the office hours.
0: Hmm. Okay, <laughs> then then I guess it's fine. <laughs> I've had this problem recently, and I I tried it really different angles, or trying to explain it, it, it differently, trying to to pull out different resources, and and somehow um, I couldn't make it um, make it or make 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 sense out of it for this person. And after after a few minutes, I was very, um, very, um, unsure of what to do. And if I got something wrong and I put myself in question and, um, I guess it was a wrong alignment of planets at that time. And, um, that was really hard to handle. I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't used to that. So I was interested in how you, how you would handle this.
1: Yeah, no, that's definitely a tough one. I think another thing is, just time like sometimes it takes somebody practicing with a concept a couple times or just going on to another concept and then going back to that previous one at some point unless it's something like super super critical usually that that cycle kind of works of just giving somebody more time and coming back to something
0: that's that's a very interesting point um how do you do you match this concept of of giving somebody time to think about it and process it, etc., with the construct of a boot camp, which is basically uh, try to crunch as many uh, hours in three or four months to prepare somebody to something. How, how do those two, those two work with the other?
1: Yeah, so I think for pretty much everybody, a boot camp is the start or a part of your journey, I usually recommend that people like self-teach a little bit before doing a boot camp so that they know that they like writing code and can understand what's going on at a basic level first. So that's kind of the first level. But a lot of boot campers also had programming experience in their past. They took computer science in college. They were a software engineer 20 years ago, but are trying to move back to that. So a lot of them... This is not their first step in their coding journey. But once they get to the boot camp, it really looks different for different people. And different people get more and less out of it. I'm just based off of, like, learning styles and how fast these things click for them. And so I think everybody comes out of a boot camp with some base level of knowledge, but some people are going to have to go back and keep working on their projects after that boot camp and really keep solidifying their knowledge, go back through the lessons that were given, like go back through those materials, make sure that they make sense. So for some people, that's going to be a reality after the boot camp is that their learning journey I mean, for anybody, their learning journey is just starting. But for them, it's really just starting, and they do have to go back through the curriculum and make sure that they're up to speed on everything before job seeking. But the the majority, the vast majority, are at a place where they can just keep expanding their knowledge and my experience. Um, but yeah, it's really it is a really tough uh, scenario because. Things do tend to kind of snowball if people don't catch up just because of how lessons build off of one another. So that's one of those things. If you're at a boot camp, like please take advantage of office hours if you have access to them because then you're getting a one-on-one chance to have everything explained to you. Also, really recommend if your instructors put out materials before class, going through the materials before class so that... When you're actually in lecture, it's the second time you're seeing the material, and you may have a better grasp of it there. But then again, you're also getting hit with the material again when you're doing the homework or the projects. And so hopefully these things are being reinforced over and over again, and you're staying up to speed with them. Um, Or the project time periods usually are a little bit slower, at least the one that I worked at. We had dedicated weeks where you just worked on your projects, and that was a pretty good catch-up time if you weren't understanding something to put that time in and learn that thing in order to make the project. So it is definitely really tough to catch up, but it also is, it is doable. And as long as you have an instructional team that is really strong, then hopefully, hopefully you'll get back on pace but it is hard because things do tend to snowball.
0: Mm-hmm, I see. I see. Uh, did you have a chance to, um, to guide people after they started their, their career? So, so at the end of a bootcamp or at the end of, uh, of uh, their studies,
1: unfortunately, once they're kind of done with the bootcamp, then they transition on to the career services. And, uh, then also I transition on to having new students usually. So that's kind of the, the tough part with that is that I definitely stay in touch with former students and learn how they're doing. And I love hearing their success stories. That's like the coolest thing to me. But at the same point, unfortunately, I'm not their teacher anymore. I'm just, just kind of a friend at that point.
0: <laughs> well, that's fun. That's fun as well.
1: <laughs> yeah definitely definitely a different type of
0: relationship could you speculate or maybe you have some uh, some idea um where would people coming out of boot camps be um be exceptionally uh, well prepared for or what, what would they be exceptionally well prepared for and um where would they maybe have some some trouble or, or struggle uh, compared to people coming for university for instance yeah so
1: the Best one that I can give you, like if you can do this, it's a total home run. If you're a career changer, so you had a career before the boot camp and then you're transitioning to a new career, if you can go back to the industry that you were in as now a developer or software engineer, like that's such a perfect match because you have the context of the field, like you understand what tools you're building, you know how that field works. But now you also have this additional skill set of writing code on top of that. And so you can really mesh well into a team and give a lot of really great context to that team and support it really well. So that's kind of like my hit the ball out of the park fit for boot camp grads. And that's what I did too. Like my interests were politics before joining this field. And I worked in politics as a software engineer and having that context of knowing how politics kind of worked and i knew the jargon i knew how all that that worked i knew what things people needed that was so helpful and so that's what i recommend if at all possible um if that's not possible then finding a role that's going to have really really great mentorship i think is really important for anybody starting their career like having uh, Job that they really know what they're doing and can support you well and aren't going to blame stuff on you too fast and all of that. Like, make sure that you're joining a great team. Where I think people may struggle a little bit more than CS grads. Computer science grads tend to have more math background in general, like to overgeneralize. So, if it's a really mathematical role or really engineering-heavy role, then the computer science grad usually has the leg up there, especially if it's non-web-focused. The boot camp grads really have more of the web-focused than anything hardware-related or anything like that.
0: This pretty, uh, pretty well matches up with uh, what I've observed so far. Um, people coming from apprenticeship or from boot camps have a tendency to be very, um, very practical and and go very fast uh, finding finding practical solutions um and people coming out of university have more this uh, this abstract view on things and they kind of uh, struggle with with getting to a practical solution first and not al- analyze everything um but five years after starting in the univ- in the uh, in the industry um it's leveled up usually
1: yeah yeah definitely it only really matters for that first job or so. And then after that first job, it all kind of evens out.
0: Absolutely. Um, You've said you're a developer advocate right now. That's correct.
1: Yes. So I have two jobs right now. I work as just a software engineer writing code for the code base. And then on top of that, I also am a developer advocate.
0: So what do you do as an advocate?
1: Yeah. So I'm new to it, so I'm definitely not the foremost expert on developer advocacy. I've just been doing this for a couple of months now. But to me, a lot of it is building community bonds. So I am really passionate about working with the developer community to try to grow together, to try to improve, to try to build resources for other people to teach better and to learn better because of kind of my background and what I'm passionate about. Um, So fostering that is really important to me. And so I try to do a bunch of community events, both speaking at them and organizing them. And then I also have a blog that does pretty well. And so that is something that's a big part of my work as well. So balancing out this kind of community relationship along with, the software engineering that I do is the other half of my job.
0: Mm-hmm. Is this a role that you had foreseen for yourself?
1: It's definitely something I was interested in because um, it, to me it felt like kind of a natural extension of teaching. And teaching is really my passion. I, I love doing that. And so developer advocacy seemed like a great way of meshing that lo- love with a little bit more. Of the writing code on a day-to-day basis situation as well, so I definitely did not know it was a thing until I was on Twitter maybe a year or so ago. But after after talking to some, it seems like a really great great role.
0: Mm-hmm. And did you Did you apply for it, or did uh, did somebody um, hunt you for that?
1: Yeah, so. I was actually a community member on dev before I worked for them. And I was a member for a year or so and was pretty involved with that community and writing blog posts, but also doing webinars for them and contributing to the code base. And so it seemed like kind of a natural extension of the community work that I was doing already to move over to working for them full time. So I did just have conversations with the founders instead of doing formal interviews or anything like that.
0: That, That's interesting. That's the second time you speak about this, about giving your time and, and trying to, uh, to do something, I wouldn't say for free, but uh, for, for the, uh, for the sake of, uh, of the stuff you want to learn. You said this before when, uh, when you said you started teaching on a voluntary basis and this evolved into something else. Is this the case?
1: Yeah, so I think my kind of fun fact that I don't talk about too too much but it's out there is that I haven't actually ever applied for a developer job. So my first job I got through just writing a cold email to this company and saying that what they were doing was kind of similar to what I was interested in. And then my second job I got through that guest lecturing and then this one through the community and so that's definitely been an interesting balance there of really getting jobs through connections that i made when i was not looking for jobs rather than connections that i made when i was looking or anything like that
0: are you intentional in making connections not not in in the purpose of getting something out of it afterward but um trying to network and get out there um intentionally because you know it's important
1: Honestly, I am just a really social person. And so I like having (laughs) a lot of friends and making a lot of connections in that respect. And so I never really think about like, you know, oh, this might lead me to a job someday. It's more just like, oh, this person's really cool. I want to be friends with them. And then, you know, luckily, someday something happens. Where, you know, my blogging, I never thought that was going to lead anywhere. Like, you know, when I was getting seven reads on each of my Medium posts, I never thought that I would be at a place where I'm going to, you know, reach a million viewers in a couple months. Like, that's such a different thing than I would have ever expected from myself. So, yeah, these things are definitely not intentional, but I, I feel very grateful that they, they have happened. <laughs>
0: Um, I, I cannot leave it uh, leave it leave this in 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 the air without asking. How did you get to from seven read to one million? What's the secret sauce?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> lots of, lots of different factors in that. So I think the first thing I started cross posting, and so instead of just posting on Medium, I was also posting to Devs 2 which I work for now, and their kind of homepage algorithm and their social sharing uh, really ended up building more of a following there. And then also social media has been kind of a part of that as well, where I've gotten lucky a couple of times with Hacker News and Reddit. And then also having a consistent Twitter situation has also helped. So, definitely a combination of a lot of factors but um i think just like a lot of patience is is key for for growing any sort of blog is that it's going to be slow at first and then at some point hopefully will hockey stick a little bit
0: Mm -hmm. you i think you're downplaying your your effort in there so you were consistent for a few years i i i'm sure
1: yeah so i have been blogging really consistently for around a year or so. So it definitely has grown faster than I would have thought it would. Um, But yeah, there's definitely a lot of work that goes into it and writing a lot of blog posts that are content that I believe in and stuff that I can really stand behind. And then also, you know, using my beliefs and things and writing about that has also been been a good formula for me there and then also like social media is fun but it's also work in a lot of ways and building that has taken some effort as well
0: oh boy there's so much i would like to ask but we've reached, we we we're almost <laughs> over the time box already um if you could give yourself um and advice maybe back back at university. Uh, what what would that be?
1: Yeah. So I'm gonna give you two pieces of advice here and break the rules a little bit. The sure. first one is to believe in yourself that you think you're worse at this than you actually are. And coding at least at first is really hard for almost everybody. Like nobody really understands this right away and it doesn't come to them immediately. And so sticking with it is going to be worth it. So that's the first piece. The second one is to get involved with the developer community faster. So I was not involved in the groups that I'm involved in, like Women Who Code or DC Tech or any of those things early, early on in my career. And I think having those communities around me of other programmers, especially other women in tech, would have been super, super helpful to have people in a similar position to myself. Um, And then also just to learn what other people are building and going to these lectures to learn about different things and reading other people's blog posts and all that. I think that being involved in the developer community earlier than I was would have been really helpful.
0: Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And two two answers is perfect. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what's on your plate in the...
1: Yeah, so I am speaking at a couple things over this summer. The ones coming up most fast, I guess, are Revolution Conference in Virginia Beach and OSCON in Portland, Oregon. So those will be two really fun ones. Um, In addition to that, I'll be blogging kind of like normal at dev2slash aspiddle. And then you can find me on Twitter again as a spittle and all of my upcoming events and all the things that I'm doing are in one place at my portfolio site, which is A-L-I-S-P-I-T dot T-E-L. So it's my name, but with a dot in it. Mm -hmm.
0: Fantastic. I will add all those links to the show notes so that the listeners can just click on it and don't have to type anything. Fantastic, and would great. Twitter be the yeah. the first place um to um to reach out to you?
1: I think the dev two is probably the best one we have a chat platform, so you can reach out to me there, but Twitter is also great
0: okay, so we'll add all that to the show notes. Thank you very much. This is a blast a very interesting story thank Thank you very much
1: Thank you. This was fun.
0: And this has been another episode of Developer's Journey. We'll see each other in two weeks. Bye-bye. Dear listener, if you haven't subscribed yet, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and much more. Head over to www.devjourney.info to read the show notes, find all the links mentioned during the episode, and of course, links to the podcast on all those platforms. Don't miss the next Developer's Journey story by subscribing to the podcast with the app of your choice right now. And if you like what we do, please rate the podcast, write a comment on those platforms and promote the podcast on social media. This really helps fellow developers discover the podcast and those fantastic journeys. Thank you.